0: Okay, Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11 this morning, and no, we're not going backwards in our series in Acts, but we're going to do a topical uh, study of the Ascension, and this is the most robust account of the Ascension, so we're going to go back uh, on ground we've already covered and read um, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, and then we'll um, dig into this wonderful doctrine of the Ascension, so let's pray. Father as I had prayed early this morning For the preparation of hearts So now I pray that you open hearts To hear and to receive your word And open my own heart To to receive the word preached To delight in its truths To take them for myself And to live in their light Will you do these things We ask for all your people So that we would be ones who rest in Christ and live and work in light of His grace. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11. The account of the ascension of the Lord Jesus. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. Amen. may be seated. Without fail, nearly every article or every sermon on the ascension that I found begins with the comment... We don't talk much about the Ascension. (laughs) And despite all the comments about not commenting about the Ascension, we don't comment much about the Ascension. So I could feel compelled to make the same comment. Now we celebrate, uh, obviously, the Incarnation at Christmas. Uh, We celebrate the Resurrection at Easter. Where is Ascension Day celebration? This is something that I have noticed, among many others, and would like to see changed in our own church and in our own family. I think it's a worthy thing to celebrate, and you'll see why as we go through this message. (coughs) Now, the question is, or one question is, why don't we celebrate the Ascension like we do the Incarnation or the Resurrection? I steal this point from Joel Beakey, but he he noticed that the Heidelberg Catechism devotes six questions to the exaltation of Christ, to his ascension and session at the right hand of the Father, whereas it devotes only one to resurrection and two to incarnation. The earliest creed, the Apostles' Creed, comments on the ascension. It says he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. The Nicene Creed echoes that same thing. I saw a claim, and it was unsubstantiated in the article I read, but that somewhere it was mentioned as far back as 68 A.D. I don't know if that's true or not, but as Michael mentioned, um, Augustine commented on it as a standard practice to celebrate the ascension. Before before him, uh, in the 3rd century, Eusebius, the historian, probably mentioned it or alluded to it. Uh, The Orthodox Church celebrates it with all-night vigils. And if you you know grew up in an Episcopal church, you, you probably celebrated it as part of the yearly liturgy. Um, but this is something that's been a part of church life and still is in, in other traditions um, for for years. So why don't we celebrate it? I think two things contribute to that. Uh, first, to borrow again from Brother Joel Beattie, uh We are kind of an earthbound society these days. And ascension is a heavenly doctrine. It's a doctrine that calls us, as Colossians 3 says, to set our eyes on heaven where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And in general, Western society, influenced by naturalism and secularism, is focused on things of earth. In fact, it believes that there are only things of earth. Uh, Another thing that I think plays a part in our not focusing on it is kind of our history. Um, The Reformation, by necessity, focused on justification by faith alone, through grace alone, focused on the cross, rightly so. It was much needed. And that, that really should occupy the center of the focus of our gospel. And yet, isn't the Heidelberg Catechism a Reformed Catechism? The reformers did focus on the exaltation and ascension of Jesus. So as the church in our history kind of journeyed on through the, the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and, and on into a more attractional gospel presentation, we arrived at this sort of form of, of least common denominator, Christianity. Least common denominator, Christianity, says, Let's only preach that which is common to all traditions and all faith. And in the name of unity, we'll, we'll keep controversial or complex doctrines off to the side. So the result is an, an anemic gospel. Where, where as far as we know, the, the only thing that Jesus ever did was die on the cross. But this loss of robust, full orb biblical doctrine has meant a loss of the full-orbed gospel. Things like the active obedience of Christ, the ascension, the the session of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, the judgment. All of these things are essential gospel truths and part of the message. And they've been relegated to kind of the, the second and third tier doctrines drawers. So, uh, my aim this morning is to kind of present an overview of the doctrine of the Ascension and also to just discuss the importance and value of the doctrine. We'll be looking at, first, how the Ascension glorifies Christ, which, of course, is the first and most important thing of any doctrine. How it glorifies Christ. And then we'll look at how it's essential to our redemption. As Michael said, essentially, we, we don't have salvation if we don't have ascension it's essential for our redemption and then finally we'll look at some of the practical ways that the ascension impacts our, our daily lives um, so first we'll look at the glory of Christ in the ascension uh, by the way I forgot to mention I did print out I noticed as I was making this manuscript there was a lot of scripture references I was jumping all over so if you didn't grab one on your way in you're welcome to jump up and grab one but Just a a list of scriptures that we'll be hitting on this morning. Um, So first, let's look at the glory of Christ in the ascension. How does the ascension bring glory to Jesus? We should be invested in that question. How does it bring glory to Jesus? Because his glory is our highest good. Jonathan Edwards says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives or children or the company of any other or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. So if we have God, if we're pursuing the glory of God, that's to our greatest good as well. And so that's why we're invested in this question. Why is the glory of Christ in the ascension important? So I want to look at the glory of Christ and the ascension from three biblical angles. And the first is that of the son of man, the son of man, Matthew 26, 46 through 66 or 64 through 66. Jesus said to him, that is the high priest, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the High Priest tore his robes and said, "He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. So Jesus here talking to the High Priest at his trial, is referencing the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel chapter seven, where Daniel says, he saw in a vision night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of man, and he came to the ancients of, ancient of days and was presented before him." This is what Jesus is talking about here at his trial. He's calling himself the Son of Man. He's saying, "I'm that guy in the prophecy." And of course, it causes the high priests to, to to have, have an aneurysm and his <laughs> <laughs> At first glance, in this passage in Daniel chapter seven, we we might think it's about the second coming of Christ, but we notice it says, "And he came to the Ancient of Days, not from, but to." He's talking about ascension here. Jesus is claiming before the high priest to be the Christ. He is this exalted one. Prophecy in Daniel comes in the context of the vision of the four beasts, which are four kingdoms, and these four kingdoms would be taken away, and this Son of Man would receive dominion. He'd be given a kingdom, and he'd have dominion over the entire earth. So ascension is about much more than, as Michael said, (laughs) travel plans or a, a man floating into the sky. It is actually coronation. It's his ascension to the Ancient of Days to receive dominion, to receive a kingdom, to receive sovereign authority. So the ascension glorifies Christ by proving that he, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is this prophesied son of man coming on the clouds of glory to exercise dominion over the earth. And the second biblical view of the glory of Christ in the ascension is that he is the king. He is the king of glory. I think one of the most beautiful uh, psalms is Psalm 24. Kind of echoes the uh, ascension here, points us to the ascension. Psalm 24, 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Um, these are included under Psalms of Enthronement. Robert Letham says, Psalms of Enthronement feature in the installation of a royal king. They portray an ascent to royal sovereignty, the enthronement of Yahweh as king. So likely these were sung in process, procession up to, to Jerusalem, like when, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Um, and here we see in Psalm 24, the gates, gates must rise up to receive their king. The, the conquering king who comes riding in, he's obtained victory over his enemies, and, and he must he, he's just received glory, he must not stoop to enter the city. The gates must rise up so he can come in. Fully upright. Lift up your heads, O gates. So the ascension is a display of Jesus as supremely sovereign. The King of glory. Humble Jesus. Born in a low condition. Lived under the law. Endured all the pain and misery of human life. And more. Was crucified... God spent three days in the dirt. And he's now being honored as the glorious conquering king for whom the gates of the city must rise up for his entrance. Our third biblical viewpoint on the glory of Christ in ascension is his victory. Uh, As part of his ascension and coronation, we see what's called often in theology, his session where he sits at the right hand of God. Colossians two fifteen says that after having nailed the certificate of debts, our certificate of debts, to the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. That's strong language. Disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame conquering king has returned from battle and he's leading a procession of his enemies who are disarmed, who are exposed, who are naked, who are humiliated. He's won the victory. And, and it's interesting, We we are part of the procession as well. We were once enemies of Jesus, but he conquered us so that we are now his servants. And we're happy about it. Rather than making us walk the walk of shame, he's made us soldiers in his own army. And so we walk in the procession. We walk hand in hand with him, reveling in and sharing in his glory. In ancient times, the conquering king would lead this procession of captives and the spoils of war through the streets, and his honored generals would go along with him. And we get to be among those, the honored ones that go along with him. That's the image of the victory that we have in Jesus in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 7 through 14. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave them to men, gave gifts to men. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So as the king parades his enemies ashamed through the streets, he's won the battle, he's won the war, but yet he knows the war is not yet finished. And so the gift of the spoils that he bestows upon the church are gifts that will strengthen and mature the church for the coming battles. He's given us men who will teach and shepherd the church so that we will grow strong and mature and be able to weather oncoming onslaughts of false doctrine. So in the ascension, even in the giving of gifts to the church by the ascended and enthroned Christ, we see his glory. They they are his triumph over the enemy. You ever think of gifts that Jesus has given to us as as that, as spoils of war given to His people as good gifts for us? Amen. That That's the picture we have in the ascension. So the glory of Jesus in the ascension is in these three things, is that He is in number one, the, He is the Son of Man who comes on the clouds of glory to be presented before the Ancient of Days. Number two, he's is to receive... His kingdom as the king of glory, in which he receives all dominion and power and honor and glory. And third, that he's putting his enemies to open shame. So that's the glory of Christ in the ascension. Now let's consider uh, how the ascension is essential to our redemption. We need it. Our attention is always on the crucifixion and the resurrection. Which is right. It should be there. But it should be not to the neglect of the ascension. Uh, without the ascension, we would not be saved. One author said that the ascension is the linchpin of all Christ's other saving works. Without it, they, they are incomplete. <coughs> consider this this kind of blew me away it struck me this week Jesus was the first human in the father's presence since the garden in the garden God would walk with man in the cool of the night but the fall caused man to hide from the presence of God And we've been hiding ever since. Jesus is the first human being in the presence of the Father since the garden. The ultimate problem of man and the ultimate question we can ask is how can we be restored to the presence of God? How can we mend that rift? How can we be reconciled and find fellowship? How can we walk in the cool of the garden with God again? Because that's what we were meant to do, to walk in fellowship with God, to enjoy His presence, to to be His trusted caretakers of the earth. But we've fallen from grace. We no longer have direct access to the presence that we once did. So for me, this is probably the most striking aspect of the ascension. And I've brought it up a number of times, but that the Heidelberg Catechism says, we have our flesh in heaven. (laughs) Our flesh in heaven. Once again, man... With God. For the first time in human history since the garden, humanity has entered into the presence of God. Which means Satan loses. Satan wanted to come into the garden and disrupt the relationship between God and man. But God and man have been reconciled. And don't think just because we're here on earth and Jesus is up there that we're not partakers of this res- re- reconciliation. We who are in Christ through faith enjoy fellowship with God through Christ. We're partakers of the presence. As Colossians chapter 1 says, For you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we now partake of the presence of God, communion with God through Christ, our flesh in heaven, even as we're still waiting for our bodies to to rejoin Christ. So that's the first reason that the ascension is essential for our redemption, is that humanity has been restored into the presence of God through the ascension. Second reason is vindication, the vindication of Christ's work. Philippians 2, 5-9, through 9, Christ Jesus, who... The ascension and exaltation of Jesus are the direct result and reward for his work. <coughs> Hebrews 1.3 says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we have to understand that the exaltation, the restoration, the redemption of men, that's what's at focus in the life and work of Jesus. The exaltation, redemption, and reconciliation of man. Jesus didn't need more exaltation. He's the second person of the Trinity. He came to be to, to restore man. That's what's at focus in the life and work of Jesus. The Son is the Son. He didn't need more glory. This, this is why he prays in John 17:1 through 5. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The glorification of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, is entirely conditioned upon the absolute finality of the accomplishment of all of his redemptive work. So, when Jesus ascends to the Father and the Father says to him, sit in my right hand, that preaches to us the finality of our redemption. It's finished. It vindicates the work of Christ. He's done it. Redemptive, redemption is accomplished. The third essential aspect of our redemption I should say a third. I pick three things because it's a sermon and I have to limit it to something. There's like a thousand things we could talk about. But the third essential aspect for our redemption in ascension is his intercession. Hebrews 7.23 The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Uh, Robert Letham again, he says, The ascended Christ intercession has no caveats. It is to be compared with the high priest in the Old Testament who entered the most holy place once a year wearing the prescribed breastplate containing 12 jewels representing the 12 tribes of Israel. In this representative capacity, he was, so to speak, bringing the 12 tribes with him into the sanctuary of God. And he says, and this is amazing, in an analogous way, Christ, having passed through the heavens, brings us, his people with him, into the presence of God. At the right hand of the Father, and he does this, since he himself not merely represents man, but is man himself. Jesus' intercession is not over- Father, I know you're angry and and you you want to crush these worms into a thousand pieces, but but let's just not. They're not really so bad. That's not intercession. Instead, his life in heaven is an intercession for us. Because there's a very real sense in which Jesus has carried us into the courts of heaven with him. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. We're there. Because He is there, we're there. Without ascension, we have no intercession. We have no salvation. So now we'll look at, uh, again, th- three um, pr- kind of practical elements. Um for for our daily lives, the intercession should impact, I mean, ascension should impact our daily lives. The first of these is that if we are citizens of heaven, it makes sense that we think in heavenly terms. We think heavenly thoughts as a result of the of the ascension. So when we're united to Christ by faith, when our our vine is grafted into His vine, we share in all that He's accomplished. Um, So His life becomes our righteousness. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And even His ascension, He has transported us with Him into glory. When the New Testament refers to resurrection or to ascension, the two things are often very tightly related. And so when one is mentioned, the other is often implied. So that's what's going on in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4. through four. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. You catch what he's saying? He's gone up, and your life has gone up there with Him. Your life is not here. Your life is there. You've heard the saying, Don't be so heavenly-minded that you are of no earthly good. The converse is far more likely and much, much worse. God help us if we become so earthly-minded that we are of no heavenly good. It says right here, set your minds on things that are in heaven, not on things that are on earth. Pretty clear. Paul laments in Second Timothy that Demas, his missionary companion, has abandoned him because he was in love with the present world. Let's beware, at least we become like demons. Instead, re- remember that the, the ascension transports us to heaven with Jesus. It both enables and exhorts us to have th- heavenly thoughts. What does that mean, though? <laughs> Think heavenly thoughts. Like, head out into the desert, become an ascetic monk, and, and hum. Well, it does mean, I think Psalm 111.2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. We're meant to ponder the ways and nature of God. In other words, I do think we're meant to be a theological people, to have view the world through a theological Framework. I think that's part of what it means to have our minds set set on heaven, to ponder the ways of the Lord, His character, His works, His attributes, and let those things inform our lives. But also, I think Paul actually paints a picture for us um, as he proceeds through the rest of Colossians chapter three about what a heavenly-minded life looks like, and actually, it's quite ordinary. The rest of Colossians 3, after his exhortation to set our minds on things above, not on things of earth, consists of things like put to death earthly lusts. Be honest. Find your identity in Jesus, not in in other markers like race. Put on godly character. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Uh, That's a picture of heavenly thinking. Or it impacts family life. He says, wives are to submit to husbands. Husbands are to love wives. Fathers are not to um, provoke children. It impacts our work life. Employees and employers honoring Christ with their interactions. So if we want to have heavenly thoughts, I think, start by reading and memorizing the whole of Colossians chapter 3. It's a picture of what heavenly mindedness looks like. Living as heaven citizens on earth is actually quite simple. Not easy, but it's pretty simple. It's really a matter of living in light of the truth that our life is in heaven with Christ. No longer straddling the fence between this present world and the glory of heaven. So that's the first practical implication is that we have heavenly thoughts. The second is... It impacts the way we worship. The ascension impacts the way we worship. Um, If you were right now in the presence of God, like Isaiah 6, in his courtroom, how would that impact the way you worship? Well, you are. You are in His courts. Hebrews 12, 12 12-24 You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and innumerable angels and festal gatherings to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a better, of a new covenant. And then listen to how The author of Hebrews tells us how we are to worship in response to that reality that we have come into the courts of God through Jesus. He says in verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful, having received a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship. See, there is such a thing as unacceptable and acceptable worship. And he says with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Notice it's because we are with the ascended Christ in heaven and we've set aside earthly and fleshly considerations that we come to God with reverence and awe. God doesn't become like a a fluffy teddy bear when we become Christians. In the text, it's precisely because we are grateful for having received an unshakable kingdom and because he is our God that we notice he's a consuming fire. The ascension brings us into his presence. Therefore, we worship as though in his presence. With awe and reverence because he's a consuming fire. Finally, the third practical implication of the ascension is assurance in the presence of God uh the knowledge that god is a consuming fire doesn't mean we we come with a sense of foreboding to god we come with confidence because we come in christ as he represents us before his throne because in christ we are clean and we are made partakers of his righteousness so hebrews 10:19 through 25 therefore brothers since we have confidence And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 4.16 Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So despite... God being a consuming fire and we come to him with reverence and awe. We do not come with a sense of foreboding, but with a sense of confidence, with assurance. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is for us before the throne of God. Amen. I'll wrap things up with my hope. My hope for this message or even my hope for the fact that we even pause to spend time on the Ascension is that it will inspire us to include the Ascension right alongside the crucifixion, the resurrection as essential elements of our salvation and to rejoice in it. It belongs in that place. And I hope as years progress, as we grow in this, that our church and as our individual families will take time to celebrate. Perhaps next year we'll have a feast of the Ascension. I think it's worthy of that. Most of all, I hope you personally delight and rest in and lay hold of those many glories that the Ascension brings to us. I was only able to present a small tasting here this morning. Um, So I hope you ponder the Ascension further yourself. It's worthy of a sizable portion of your heavenly thoughts. Amen.